Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Tuesday, March the 15th, 2022, and we'll be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, March the 21st, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our the 100th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight. And thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show is an attempt to deconstruct oppression, to unveil its character and driving influences in the backdrop of the third week of the Russian post-invasion of Ukraine. War is a terrible thing, and a quick end to this war is what certainly we hope for. But also the manipulation of public sentiments, not on behalf of humanity, but on behalf of promoting the huge wealth disparities that persist in the world today and the foreign policies that drive them is the focus of the show. To understand the Ukraine, United States, NATO, Russia invasion crisis is to appreciate the veracity or lack thereof of all competing perspectives. Today marks our 100th post-COVID show, and some 20 of those shows have been largely focused on the very context and the developing conflict in the Ukraine, or to issue claims against Russia and Putin by our government and mainstream press. Today's show seeks to connect the context that is indispensable to understanding U.S. foreign policy motivations and purpose. We share common denominators, if you will, of our objective activities that we have executed in other nations using two prototypical examples, the 1954 coup in Guatemala and the 1973 coup in Chile, that are not outliers, but reveal the methods and standard operating procedure of our sovereignty-violating protocols in other nations in black and white for all to see. These protocols, according to the National Endowment for Democracy founding director, are CIA methods that have been continued under the auspices of the likes of the National Endowment for Democracy through and up until today. What is the $5 billion invested into Ukraine since 1991 by the United States all about? Is it about democracy building, or is it about installing governments that are subservient to U.S.-led big business penetration and exploitation of the majority populations of those countries whose sovereignty we penetrate? In the second half of the show, we also have special guest Alan Pogue, who joins Pedro to share incriminating and incontrovertible evidence that compares the United States-led Iraq intervention with regard for protecting civilian populations 
compared to the current Russian invasion concern for civilian life. We implore you to consider news as a weapon and suggest you reserve judgment on the execution of the Russian invasion, one which we all may not agree with, and that we suggest, based on past misrepresentations by our mainstream media, that we reserve judgment on what side are the real violators of rules of war when it comes to the protection of innocence. Enjoy. When you look around the world and see the incredible wealth disparities that exist, they did not occur overnight. We have done shows that go back and look at how originally in the 1400s, the Spanish and Portuguese conquered the New World, enslaved the indigenous peoples. France and the UK, along with the Dutch, eventually supplanted the Spanish and Portuguese as the dominant colonial powers. As a result, one example is in Haiti, which used to be St. Dominique. It's the most profitable colony in the history of the world, and it was based on slave trade. And there was a slave revolt culminating in Haiti, gaining independence from France, January 1st, 1804. And as a result of that revolution, France lost its colony. But before it lost its colony, all of the world colonial powers came to its aid to try to suppress this revolt because the revolt of slavery meant all of these wealthy elite country benefits based on slave trade would be challenged. So the Spanish tried to help the UK tried to help. Napoleon from France, of course, led the charge. Even the United States, which was just a burgeoning power, a very weak one at that time, gave military aid to try to suppress the French Saint Dominique revolt. Despite all these imperial powers joining forces to suppress this black slave revolt and to protect their oppression-generating profiteering, they did not succeed. Instead, Haiti independence was won. So you have this great colonial power, France, that got all of its wealth or most of its wealth, just like all these other colonial powers off the backs of slavery, launching France into an elite colonial power status. And this is where this wealth is largely generated from, or at least its initial accumulation. Slavery was replaced by depressed wages for workers, particularly in developing nations. U.S. foreign policy, backed by its enormous military might, essentially partnered with large corporate interests. And as a result, the accumulation of wealth continued to go disproportionately to the wealthiest entities. Here in our country, it was 1823, the Monroe Doctrine, in which in this particular hemisphere, we declared that this is now our domain, that we are the number one power, supplanting the French and the UK who had supplanted the Spanish and the Portuguese. As the dominant imperial power of the Western Hemisphere, famously called our backyard, the partnering of U.S. foreign policy and the military that comes with it with the economic entities of big business and the interests of big business is really an important understanding that we wish to explicate here today. An internal logic emerges complete with its own set of motivations when you look at the development of our country into one of the great world economic powers. So in this hemisphere, the United States dominated the South with military invasion after invasion and installing governments that were congruent with the economic interests of investment capital from the United States and other multinational corporations. I start the show with this analysis because the old line, just follow the money, there's a lot of truth to that. And an important theme of tonight's show is to show how 
Wealth is translated into power over government policy, which becomes subservient to it. In his book, Bitter Fruit, by Stephen Schlesinger and Stephen Kinzer, it does a remarkable job of reflecting that big business, corporate, and U.S. government, military, symbiotic relationship. Their analysis begins very early with the acknowledgement that monopoly capitalism is of such a nature that it offers gross advantages to a relatively few huge corporations. The book Bitter Fruit details the coup in 1954 in Guatemala and the degree of power that the United Fruit Company possessed in the early 1950s in Guatemala is hard to fully comprehend, but once it is fully comprehended, we have critical insights into the essential nature of the capitalist world economy. In other words, a world economy thoroughly dominated by capital and its largest wealth disparities generating entities. The combination of military dictatorships and U.S. economic interests is striking. El Tiempo in Honduras published evidence that Standard Fruit, which was a fruit company that was established in the United States back in 1924 and today is Dole, after becoming Castle and Cook, it's different from Chiquita, which was previously United Fruit Company, and United Fruit Company was founded in 1899 when Boston Fruit and another company merged. But anyhow, if you go back to this El Tiempo piece in Honduras and Standard Fruit, they were making payments to Colonel Gustavo Alvarez. And in 1982, which was some five years later, he was named commander-in-chief in Honduras. Anyhow, the leader of the military battalion, which had intervened at the cooperative in Union back in February of 1977. So when there was labor issues in Central America, the actual military would suppress them. They arrived in Standard Fruits railroad cars at this cooperative, this Las Islitas cooperative, that was made up of previously fired workers by Standard Fruit. So they'd formed this cooperative, and they were violently suppressed when they demanded reasonable wages. And this relationship is reflected in a 1976 United States Securities and Exchange Commission investigation Quote, Castle and Cook admitted that between 1971 and 1975, the company made $1.3 million in payments to government officials in foreign countries for security purposes. Private payments specifically to police for protection in emergency situations such as occurred during, quote unquote, unruly labor strikes. But as we return to the bitter fruit story... In the 1950s, one example was this one that they explained, the 1954 Guatemalan coup. It's particularly well documented and instructive on how the economic interests of one company, namely United Fruit, and how inextricably connected they were politically to the United States government and how they had tremendous leverage in affecting U.S. foreign policy to serve their bottom line profiteering interests. In their book, Bitter Fruit, the story of the American coup in Guatemala, Stephen Schlesinger and Stephen Kinzer described this 1954 Guatemalan coup that was engineered by the United States. It was codenamed PB Success, and it was a successfully executed coup. It overthrew the democratically elected government of Jacobo Arbenz. It was followed by decades of U.S.-supported military Guatemalan governments marked by death squads and horrific repression that killed over 200,000 Guatemalans, mainly indigenous peoples, while terrorizing hundreds of thousands more. What precipitated the coup? When we see it through the lens of government and its agencies being employed in the interests of big business, this internal logic emerges complete with its own set of motivations. In this case, we're talking about the United Fruit Company, 
There had been previous coup attempts, but they had failed. But they revealed the incestuous relationship between U.S. business profiteering, dictating U.S. foreign policy in which United Fruit Company donated some $64,000 in cash to a previous coup attempt, but it had failed. Meanwhile, quote, the International Development Bank had reported in 1951 that the International Railroad, the IRCA, and, and the United Fruit Company Railroad Monopoly was charging the highest freight rates in the world. President Arbenz made clear that he would place a priority on building a highway to the Atlantic in order to end that railway stranglehold on the nation's foreign trade by United Fruit Company, and he also announced plans to build an electric power plant that would free the country from reliance on an American-owned facility, which was the only major electric power plant generating outlet in the country. Arbenz also enacted, through the Guatemalan Congress, the 1947 Labor Code, which for the first time permitted banana workers to join trade unions. Of course, the United Fruit Company protested, but their protests were a failed process. The U.S. government is the great protector of freedom and democracy, and it filed a protest over this new law of recognizing trade unions. In fact, in the early 1950s, United Fruit Company invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into hire a public relations team to actually promote uh, coup attempts and to make it appear reasonable to the American public in order to dethrone the elected president of Guatemala. And these were financed by the United Fruit Company, this huge company. Edward Bernays, he's the nephew of Freud, actually, he wrote four books and lectured extensively on techniques of persuasion. And he wrote in 1928, this is important, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in a democratic system. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. This is where the concept that don't believe everything you think comes from. And I would suggest the news presentation to the American public on all issues of, regarding foreign policy are affected to this day by this foreign policy public relations focus. By framing foreign policy events in a pejorative way, we are acculturated to quickly condemn any defense of Russia as Russian disinformation. Yet we do not see the greatest propagandist public relations impact is on the U.S. public through the unproven misrepresentations they generate. For example, framing the U.S. killing of civilians as collateral damage and unintentional when evidence suggests something much different that we'll be giving a concrete example to later in this program. Additionally, just think how the U.S. public consent has been generated by the misrepresentations that led us into U.S. sanctions and wars in Iraq, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Libya, resulting in millions of refugees and, in fact, millions of deaths. Returning to our Guatemalan coup example, following the labor code, in 1951, the agrarian reform law introduced and was aimed at large properties with unused land in Guatemala. The greatest danger to the landed aristocracy was the, in 1951, the agrarian reform law was the first time peasants would be allowed to organize in order to participate in land reform. On June 27, 1952, adoption of Decree 900, the Agrarian Reform Act, expropriation began. And it began following a report between 1942 and 1952 in which United Fruit Company increased its assets by 133.8% and paid stockholders a whopping almost 62 cents for every dollar invested. Because before the democratic administrations in Guatemala, we owned all the governments, 
the United Fruit Company always devalued the land value so they wouldn't have to pay their fair share of taxes, essentially defrauding the Guatemalan people. And compensation for the seized land was then, under our bins, based on United Fruit Company's very own declared tax value of the land. And it was some $627,000 in bonds. In April of 1954, a formal complaint was delivered by the U.S. State Department, not by the United Fruit Company, but our own government, on behalf of United Fruit Company. The note demanded not 627000 payment, but $15 million, $15.8 million in compensation. The amount offered by Guatemala averaged about $2.99 per acre, while the State Department wanted over $75 per acre. The company had paid only $1.48 per acre some 20 years before. Some 85% of United Fruit Company's land in Guatemala was uncultivated, some 210,000 acres. And again, compensation was paid on United Fruit Company's own valuation of the land's worth based on their tax purposes and trying to cut corners there and save money on taxes. So following the Arrivalo Democratic election, Arbenz came to power in the second Democratic administration, and he took office in March of 1951. A coup was planned after unsuccessful CIA efforts to bribe our beans. This is what we do. We bribe leaders. Most of them will maybe take it and they can stay in power, but if they don't, they're going to be cooed out. So just to be clear, leading up to the coup that overthrew some 10 years of democratic rule, again, that was first by President Juan Jose Arevalo, who was elected in 1945, and then he was succeeded by President Jacobo Arbenz in 1951. So check this out. The coup of the democratically elected government was led by Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. He claimed the elected government, Jacoby Arbenz, was communist. The integrity of John Foster Dulles's anti-communist motives have long ago been discredited, but they were fanned and they were made to appear credible even though they were not. What was kept from the United States public was the incredible conflict of interest he had, and not just him, but his brother as well. John Foster Dulles and his law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell were actually employed by United Fruit Company and negotiated the land giveaways to the United Fruit Company in Guatemala and Honduras. In fact, John Foster Dulles's brother, Alan Dulles, who was the CIA head, also did legal work for United Fruit and sat on United Fruit Company's board of directors. This was not a casual one-off representation by the law firm. The Dulles brothers and Sullivan and Cromwell were on the United Fruit payroll for 35 plus years. But wait, that's not all. Check out the rest of the complicity of this United Fruit Company with the United States U.S. government, Eisenhower administration. Under Eisenhower, Henry Cabot Lodge, who was America's ambassador to the U.N., was a large owner of United Fruit stock. Ed Whitman, the United Fruit PR man, was married to Ann Whitman, who was Dwight Eisenhower's personal secretary. You cannot see these connections because they were intentionally kept through a marketing campaign from the American public. The brother of the Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, John Morris Cabot, had once been president of United Fruit. So essentially you have the UN ambassador, you have the CIA director, you have the Secretary of State, you have the Eisenhower secretary's husband, you have John Morris Cabot and Henry Cabot Lodge, all complicitly tied to the interests not of our country, but of lining their own pockets by making sure what was best for United Fruit Company. And at the end of the day, 
when the government of Guatemala would not participate with the profiteering of United Fruit, the United States executed a successful coup. And at the same time, we hid all this complicity and conflict of interest from the U.S. public while promoting the lie that we were stopping the spread of quote-unquote communism. If you fast forward some 20 years later, Salvador Allende on 9-11-1973 was cooed out of power by the United States. He was overthrown by an investment of millions of dollars to penetrate civil society by the United States, led by Henry Kissinger and the Committee of 40. They invested all sorts of money to influence the internal politics of Chile, not in the interest of the majority Chileans, but in the interest of the United States investment capital. I share this example not because it is an outlier of U.S. foreign policy that should be condemned and never repeated, but because it is a standard operating procedure of U.S. foreign policy that most U.S. citizens are completely ignorant of. However, this is what I've studied and empirically documented for decades, and I can assure you that this is what we do routinely. We lied to the U.S. public in order to avoid good Americans from ever knowing how we manipulate the internal politics of other countries, not in order to promote democracy, but to promote profiteering by multinational corporations that are protected by their governments. The result is that wealth inequalities grow, not just in the United States, but worldwide. And with it, so does human suffering. The tools in the toolbox have changed, but the intent and motivation have not. In fact, importantly, what has not changed is the blatant violation as a matter of standard U.S. foreign policy to interfere in the sovereign affairs of another country for the perceived self-interest of U.S. corporate profiteering. Despite all attempts by the United States government, on September 4, 1970, Salvador Allende's Popular Unity Party won the popular vote and he became president of Chile. By 9-11-1973, as we mentioned, he was murdered during a coup. During this time, several million dollars were funneled to the Christian Democratic Party by the United States as efforts to keep Allende from winning the election. The White House Committee of 40 was headed by National Security Council Director Henry Kissinger. And in June 1970, John McCone, former CIA director and at that time a consultant to the CIA and a director of International Telephone and Telegraph, IT&T, subsequently holds a number of conversations regarding Chile with then-CIA director Richard Helms. Helms, in his 1970 notes, prophecy that an economic squeeze on Chile will cause its economy to scream. This is what we do. If a country's elected government is a government that we do not like because it does not provide the profiteering culture that we desire, we can make their economy scream by the enormous capacity our CIA and other elements of our foreign policy can exert. In the CIA file edited by Robert Burrassage and John Marks in 1976, Quote, the CIA had penetrated virtually every sector of Chilean life throughout the society in cooperation with the often undercover supplied by the AFL-CIO. The CIA had actually even infiltrated the Chilean labor movement. The agency operatives had bought their way into the local Chilean press. The country's largest newspaper, El Mercurio, was a regular recipient of CIA funds. Other operatives maintained regular liaison with the Chilean military and police services. End quote. Essentially, every area of civil society was penetrated by our total disregard for the sovereignty of another country. In this case, it's Chilean sovereignty. And what's important, we don't have time to get into it, though, but we, we affect these countries with very regressive governments. And as a result, almost half of the developing countries, more than 50 percent of export receipts, were from a single primary commodity, namely, in the case of Chile, Chilean copper. 
overwhelmingly and particularly in Central America as a result of U.S. tutelage and economic exploitation, these countries became totally dependent on one or two export items. This is not in the interest of Chile or these other Central American countries. It's in the interest of investment capital. Let me quickly go on because this is important on how we control other countries. In October of 1972, Chile saw the first of what were to be a wave of confrontational strikes, and they were led by some of the historically well-off sectors, not the hard-working class people of Chilean society. They received the open support of United States President Richard Nixon, a strike by the trucking company owners, which the CIA supported by funding them with $2 million within the frame of the September plan began on October 9, 1972. The strike was declared by the Confederation Nationale del Transporte, then presided by Leon Villarán, one of the leaders of the far-right paramilitary group Patria y Libertad. This is a death squad, by the way. The Confederation, which brought together 165 trucking company business associations employing 40,000 drivers and 56,000 vehicles, decreed strike paralyzing the country. All paid for by who? By our CIA. So as soon as Allende won the presidency, on September 15, 1970, President Nixon instructed his CIA director, Richard Helms, to prevent Allende from his accession to office. The CIA is to play a direct role in organizing the military coup d'etat. The involvement comes to be known as Track 2. Years later, Helms is convicted of perjury for lying to the U.S. Senate about the CIA's foreign and domestic covert activities. I share this history with you because it's absolutely necessary in order to understand how we affect the world around us through promoting governments that are not loyal to improving the plight of the majority population and prioritizing the elimination of poverty, but instead are loyal to promoting policies and governments that feed and enable profiteering. As the head of the National Endowment for Democracy, if you fast forward from the 1973 coup to the 1980s, the National Endowment Democracy is formed. And Alan Weinstein, he is the uh, head of the NED, he describes their work as what the CIA used to do. The best-known agency of democracy building is this National Endowment for Democracy, he claims. It's supposedly a private organization that operates almost 100% with our tax money. The NED was created in 1983, and Alan Weinstein, the founder and theoretical planner for the NED, these are his words. He noted them in a 1991 interview with the Washington Post, quote, a lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA, end quote. So this talk about protecting the sovereignty of other nations that you hear all the time from the lips of politicians and presidents of the United States is hogwash. We only appreciate the sovereignty of another nation when their choices are the ones that we would want them to make. If they do not make them, we will replace those governments. That is not promoting democracy, but that's what we call it. So before we turn to the Ukrainian-Russian conflict, I wanted to indicate that the history that's presented to us about Russia-Ukraine conflict starts with the alleged takeover of the Crimea by Russia. But in fact, it really starts with the 2014 coup that occurred in February that was promoted by the United States. And if you doubt that it was promoted by the United States, George Friedman, he's the founder and CEO of Stratfor, it's like a shadow CIA firm. And he said of the overthrow of Ukraine's President Viktor Yanukovych that occurred on February 22nd, 2014, it really was the most blatant coup in history, end quote. 
So the interpretation that this coup was executed by the United States and it was a coup is not my interpretation. It's the interpretation of all reasonable experts on the matter. And the misrepresentation of the coup and the issues that led up to the coup are essential for the U.S. propaganda version of what we've been getting pounded by on our TVs day in and day out. But before we go on, we need to take a brief pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. And we'll be back with our important discussion right after this. Don't touch that dial. 